You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Five, six, seven, eight. Holla, boys and girls, it's the BGN. Coming from the Marvel world to the DC friends. All the way from Hollywood to the PCN. She defends everyone from sleazy men. Born apologize for spitting Shonda Rhimes. The space that we make is never colonized. We're talking games and movies that actors were. Better shake your booties for Black Girl Nerds. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host this week along with Ryan. This is a two-part episode featuring independent film producer Yolanda T. Cochran and Lizzie Mathis of Honest Renovations. First up, Yolanda T. Cochran is featured in the new Max series called Project Greenlight. She's a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, serving on the Executive Branch Executive Committee, the Television Academy of Arts and Sciences, and also the Board of Directors of the Producers Guild of America. Her 25 plus years of experience in film and TV includes works as an indie film producer, a producer with an indie situated production company, Alcon Entertainment, and also a production executive overseeing the entire production teams at film and TV studios. Currently, you can see Yolanda featured on camera in the reality series Project Greenlight, producing the film Grey Matter, where season five reboots a behind-the-scenes look at the challenges of filmmaking. In our second segment, we chat with Lizzie Mathis. Lizzie is a fun-loving, cool mom of three and founder and editor-in-chief of The Cool Mom Company. Lizzie created an all-inclusive, diversity-driven, digitally native destination for moms and moms-to-be with a fresh, approachable, and honest point of view on millennial motherhood, bringing in the coolest in food, style, living in beauty, back-to-mom life, while keeping self-care, sustainability, and community top of mind. Since its launch, the Cool Mom Company has been dedicated to building community through womanhood while providing inspiration and information curated for the modern mother. Based in Los Angeles with a readership worldwide, the company's mission is to inspire every woman, mother, and or parent not to lose themselves in the journey, but to embrace a more full 360-degree lifestyle with self-care at the center. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy this two-part episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast featuring Yolanda T. Cochran and Lizzie Mathis, hosted by yours truly and Ryan. Well, Yolanda, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Black Girl Nerds. I I really appreciate it. We are big fans of the series Project Greenlight, which you were prominently featured on as a producer with Catchlight Studios. And um, I'm so glad that we had a chance to connect because I recently binged the show and it's currently now streaming on on max uh right. but i i, I want to talk to you and <laughs> kind of dive into it because 
as I was discussing with you prior to the recording, Project Greenlight, which has been a very interesting and compelling series on its own throughout these seasons, which we notably know from Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, who have heralded the, se the series um, since its inception. Um, I would say this season is the most compelling <laughs> and most <laughs> interesting of all of the seasons. Um, and, and in large part, uh, because of its director, because of the 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 finalist that was chosen, uh, this season is different because we have on board Issa Rae, Gina Prince Bythewood, uh, Kumail Nagiani, who are um, sort of our new Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, if you will, who are yeah. kind of um, there to be our uh, selective producers and and creative uh, directors in selecting our our filmmaker for the process. So yeah. I want to first ask you, um, how did you get involved uh, in this project and with Catchlight uh, Studios with the Project Greenlight series? Yeah, great question. So Catchlight Studios was founded by Jeanette Volturno, who was my producing partner for Grey Matter, which was the film that we produced um, as the subject of the Project Greenlight series. She founded Catchlight um, several years ago, and she and I have known each other for years just professionally in the production world. And she um, asked me if I wanted to come over and help them as they were launching a production services arm of the company, a separate uh, production services arm called Nuts and Bolts. And it just so happened that that time coincided with Max engaging Catchlight to produce Gray Matter, which it wasn't called Gray Matter at the time, but to produce the film for Project Greenlight. So it was just kind of kismet and perfect timing. And she said, hey, you know, I would I'm, I'm wanting to have a producing partner for the film. Would you join me for this? You know, it's going to be on camera. How do you feel about it? All of those things. And I was like, sure, I'm game. Let's do it. <laughs> And, I, you know, as I mentioned, this this series was so fascinating to watch. And, you know, I come from a film background. People, I think, for the most part, they assume when they see movies and, and they get a sense of what the entertainment industry is like, they think it's like this very glitzy and glamorous. Yes kind of thing but when you see how the sausage is made it's not so glamorous it, it there, there's a lot of work and working parts to making a film um and one of my biggest takeaways from watching the project green light is that um you know you really do have to have a solid script in order for it ideally to, yes <laughs> yeah to, for it to be good it, it doesn't matter how many talented people are behind it if if the script isn't solid then it can compromise a production so so what was the goal of project green light um to show kind of the consequences of this was it um to show what can happen if a script isn't fully intact is that what the goal was when they did this season um and why they didn't really change writers in that because that's what i kind of noticed was the conundrum right. in this series was ultimately the script yeah well let me preface by saying my role uh, related specifically to producing the film and other than, you know, needing to collaborate and be cohesive so that the, um, the series team could document 
us making the film, I wasn't really involved in, you know, kind of the creative and the the discussions around, you know, what's our narrative for the series, what's our goals and those kinds of things. So um, just want to say that. However, I can say from, you know, an outset standpoint, I know just even from the beginning, it was, you know, Issa Rae and Hooray said, let's relaunch this and let's, you know, let's do this in a different way this time. Obviously, we had a, you know, a candidate pool of all females. Um, so, you know, that was that was new right away and wonderful. Um, I'm so glad that that happened because I think the world is seeing that there's so many talented female directors out there who can be, you know, working and doing great work as evidenced by only the few that you saw of um, the submissions. So then it was, um, you know, let kind of also keeping the original, you know, um, aims of the series of kind of pulling back the curtain for people to see, you know, going back to what you were originally talking about of like how the sausage gets made. It's like all the challenges that are involved with filmmaking. So there wasn't anything specific of uh, a, a directly to say, let's show the world how challenging it can be from a script standpoint or a script that's not ready standpoint. Um, I know in the early stages of the process, before I even gotten involved with it, but just prior, the script was selected and our writer, Phil Gillette, who um, who was on and you see through the series, he was on um, and there were early discussions about, okay, we've chosen this script, but it was pretty raw at the time that it was chosen. That just, we knew that the, the um, hooray and catch light um, in the early days knew that there was potential there. And then we had the scope of, from uh, Max, of how much we were going to be able to spend. So then there was, you know, a, a consideration of what movie can we actually make? So everybody knew that there was work to be done and the writers were actually um, working on that as we began to launch the selection process for the director. So Phil was working on it at that time. Um, we were all having conversations about, you know, what, what, um, what challenges there were, what holes, what logic problems there were, even before the director was selected. So that work was already happening. And then unfortunately in our business, <laughs> you would be amazed at how often projects get launched for whatever set of reasons before the script is really ready. And, and when you say ready, uh -huh. ready in, that can be in a lot of different respects, ready from a creative standpoint, the storytelling, you know, maybe character development. There are things that the studio maybe feels like, okay, we want a little bit more of this, a little bit less of this. Um, we feel like it can be better, but they feel like it's definitely a story that they want to tell and want to launch and can be viable. So as we went into it, everybody knew we had short time but there were going to be things that we were going to need to address in the script before we actually started shooting to get it to the place where we where we felt like this is really this is good this is a movie that should get made and i i don't know how much you can speak to this cuz i i know that there's probably more of the project green light 
the producers and, and the folks behind that part of the series that are yeah. involved in this. But was the goal to see what the consequences are if a script isn't fully developed, what can happen in a production? Um, because, no, you know, actually, there, was a, there was a lot of back and forth with that. With yeah, yeah, for script. sure, yeah. for sure. Um, and just so I'm like, so that the audience too can be super clear because it can be confusing. I wasn't even clear until I was really immersed in it. Um, so that people understand the process and how they, what they saw and, you know, who was doing what, because people get confused about that. So obviously we have the series, Project Greenlight series, that is covering the making of the film Grey Matter. So Max hired a production company to produce the series, which was that production team. And you see this in the series, unfortunately, of like, you know, you know, when we started running into each other. And right. then there was a sec separate production company, Catchlight Studios, that was hired to produce the film. So there's two side-by-side -side productions happening at the same time. To the question of was the goal to see what the challenges can be if you aren't ready with the script, I think no one knew what the challenges were going to be. Like, it wasn't specifically like, we know we have a challenge with the script and that's what we're covering this season. That was not the... I think what has happened across all of the seasons of Project Greenlight is that every time you mount a film, there's some challenge that's going to come up or set of challenges, multiple challenges. And it's always... <laughs> It's always um, stress inducing and always difficult and can be, you know, kind of high drama in certain cases, depending upon how you deal with it. So I think what happened with season five is what ended up being the thing that was the biggest challenge was the script. It just so happened to be that that's what happened, as opposed right. to we're going to we're going to cover what it's like to, you know, go after this and launch pre-production before we have a script that's ready and not to uh you know beat a dead horse with this script conversation but just uh, a final question no it's okay they spent half the season on it i know <laughs> so it is a big topic <laughs> and, it, and it's the core of how you create create a film um yeah. but was there ever a conversation or was there ever a thought to uh bringing in another writer or replacing the writer uh, when it came to the development of, of Grey Matter? Well, there were some discussions about that. Um, I know that, you know, there were lots, there were lots of discussions about how much Miko and Phil could address things themselves without bringing in other writers. We also had, you know, a limited budget and so forth. I, right. Um, it just there were you know you're always limited by your resources and that is primarily time and money so we had a small budget we had short time because we were when Mika was selected we were seven weeks from shooting mm -hmm. so I think the, the the varying ideas about how to tackle this from that limited resources standpoint if you bring in you know a lot of other writers then you're going to need to you know pay those writers and you know where do you find the money for that and so on and so forth and then as time went on Miko was needing to spend more and more and more of her 
time and energy and waking hours on preparing to shoot the film as opposed to being able to do and and for the audiences who don't do this for a living writing is such a dedicated and focused and highly um, specialized skill set. not anybody can write even people right. who profess to be writers and and when you are writing and particularly when you're rewriting it does take time and energy so it, we initially thought let's let's do this between Miko and Phil and then after a bit Miko said you know I'd love to bring in other ideas you know if there are fixers out there because there are script fixers people who do that for it who are rewriters and who fix things and and that's kind of like their primary bellwether is to come in and like get something from pretty good to ready to go so um you know Miko did make some requests to say hey can we do that we did bring in the round table to share some ideas um and then we just kept moving and <laughs> and I will say you know time just kept ticking away and we we did by the time we were shooting you know come to agreement that we had resolved some of the largest of our issues with the script primarily being some of the rules of the world and logic things. So then it was going, then we decided, okay, it's now going to be about Miko's acuity at directing the film, getting performances out of her actors, because um, as they talked about in the series, one of the things we wanted the story to really convey was this mother daughter relationship and all the complexities of that and the emotion, you know, and, and the, the action and all the things of this mother daughter story was a lot of the discussion. So something that, um, that even I brought up as we talked about it, approaching the shooting is in, in, in my experience, having done some of my own projects that I've written and working with actors, you always want everything golden on the page, but I've also had the situation where I've had actors um, tell me that they've come across scripts that are overwritten and then, you know, they convey a lot of the story through their performance. So I had a lot of confidence going into the shooting based upon our casting choices and my confidence in Miko that the performances were going to get us to where we needed to go in that mother-daughter storytelling piece of it. Absolutely. And shout out to our writers right now who are on strike and deserve to be compensated yes. well for their work because they do Absolutely. work very hard. They do. Uh, I, I want to talk about Miko because she is the centerpiece of this series. And, um, you know, for those of you listening that have not seen Project Greenlight, please catch it. It's currently streaming on Max. But um, Miko Winbush, who is the director of Grey Matter and who is the finalist that was selected for this series, um, you know, has some issues with communication as we find out throughout these episodes. And that's a big part of being a director is communicating your vision. Uh, but one of the things that I noticed about you in comparison to some of the other producers that were, you know, coaching her throughout the episodes is you had a great deal of empathy and compassion for Miko on her journey as she was navigating her role as a first-time filmmaker. Has that always been your approach with working with filmmakers? 
It is. Um, I wouldn't say that that's like right out of the gate. I'm uh, looking to be that kind of partner, but where I think it's, I'm always, my approach is always to find out who my filmmaker is and then position all of the, the, the functions and the tools and the, the additives and my contributions are always, always, always very specific to the needs of that particular filmmaker. And it's always going to be different because every human is different. And so, and it's actually what I love about my job as a producer is um, to be the thing, you know, the, the advocate and the, 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 the problem solver and the, you know, the gatekeeper and all of the things like I always say, people say, what do you, you know, what do you love about producing? I love giving artists, I, I make an analogy of a painter. I like, you know, having a painter and providing all the tools. I want to go out and find all the paints and all the paint brushes and the canvases and the, the places and, and give the, and I, all I want is for my filmmaker to just paint, you know, don't, you don't have to worry about anything. Like, so my approach always with that partnership is to find out who that person is build a rapport based upon that and then do you know cover the places where there are you know holes or you know need you know needs or challenges that it's very interesting and the other thing we'll say I'll say is <laughs> I tease Miko about this all the time I personally as a blurred I'm a black girl nerd too <laughs> I um I love weirdos I love weird people I just do. And, and what's the definition of weird? I mean, we can get into that, but, um, and I, and I call Mika all the time. I'm like, you're a weirdo. Like the minute I met it, but interestingly, the very moment, the very first time we actually really sat down with Miko and this is in the series, she walked into the room and I asked her if she was nervous and she said, no, and she meant it. And I knew she meant it. And I was shocked. And I'm like, why aren't you nervous? You should, I'm thinking to myself, you should be nervous. I'd be nervous, but she really wasn't. And another thing that she told us in that first time we met her is that she is always on five, like her level of like where she operates in the world. She's always on five. And I thought to myself, now I really believed her when she said she wasn't nervous, but when she told me she was always on five, I was like, okay, yeah, probably like 80% of the time. And then there's going to be that one time where she's going to blow up or she's going to have an emotional reaction to something. That is not the case. She was dead serious. She's always on five. She's an an extroverted introvert. She's Mm -hmm. self-deprecating to a bit. She has this great dry wit. Mm -hmm. And she's, I would say that she's, just a really unusual human being which I actually really love that I love meeting people who are really different than other people I've ever met or that I expect and I would also say that she is super atypical to any writer or director that I've ever really worked with or come across because most often those two types of people like writers and directors are very vocal and very demonstrative because they, you know, they're telling stories, they're, you know, they're, they're very just in your face. 
And Miko is not that. And so I knew right off, I'm like, okay, I have a different individual here. I think, and I've said this to Miko, it's not a shock to her. She is an enormously talented director in multiple respects, including, you know, ideas about story, work, you know, working with her actors working with her team, knowing what she wants on her shooting day and being very specific and knowing exactly what she wants, knowing what she needs, getting it. She's very efficient with her filmmaking. Her cast still loves her. Her crew still loves her. She's still in constant contact with all of these people. I've said to her though, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I haven't cracked yet how to coach her about the expression of ideas. Hmm. I've actually told her though, I was like, Miko, you've got to be more loquacious. I was like, when you go in this meeting, you got to talk. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's not that she, the, it's not that she's not thinking and it's not that she's not considering or processing or problem solving or all of the things. I'm just not sure what it is. And it's just a specific to her personality about when it is that she opens up and expresses vocally, you know, what she's thinking. But if, the, if something does come that she does feel very strongly about, she's going to say it, you know, you're going to know it for sure. So, you know, like I said, I've, you know, I've posted a lot on um, Twitter in support of Miko because I think a lot of people have the wrong impression of her from the series. Yeah. And, um, you know, what I've said is every, every person has some set of skills that they need to improve upon everybody, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I really appreciated how compassionate you were towards her. Cause it seemed like you, um, it's Jessica was, was the Jeanette, other Jeanette, Jeanette, Jeanette. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You and Jeanette were the most sympathetic towards her when she was going through those uh, um, challenges with communicating to her team. And then, you know, some of the other producers from the hooray team were sort of like, talk to us, talk to us. Yeah, tell when, us. Yeah. When, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but, but then on the other hand, sort of kind of playing devil's advocate, do you think that when you are a director, is it important for you to be more communicative to your team and talk to those people that are in those key roles so they know what your vision is and even though you are maybe an introvert and that is a part of your personality it's still important to you know provide those provide that information so that way they understand what the overall goal is for the production yeah one thousand percent i mean and and i saw plenty of comments that i don't disagree with that as a director <laughs> you need to be communicating what your vision is, I mean, we have now a drinking game and a laugh about the word vision, but you absolutely have to be, because because if you're not effectively communicating it, then you can't reasonably have an expectation that you're going to get back what you are wanting to, you know, present through your artistry. And, you know, what is your perspective? What is your, what is your version of this? How, you know, no one can know that without you communicating it and whatever means that is and typically you know there's going to be circumstances where there's there are specific you know benchmarks or timelines or specific meetings and 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 specific you know environments where it is highly important 
that the whole purpose of that setting is to talk about what it is you're doing and what it is you're planning. And so you you really have to effectively communicate in those circumstances. And so I kind of said earlier that I haven't quite cracked um, the coaching of her. I've been spending time thinking about it, but I I do, I've gotten a little bit of the way there. And it is actually interesting because the first kernel actually got planted with me in the very early stages with Miko in the first and second week of working with her. And what I, what I learned spending time with her and working with her was she would become much more animated, much more vocal and talkative and communicative when she met someone that she vibed with. Mm, so yes. if she felt like, oh yeah, I like what you're saying. Did it, oh, this is like, you know, sparking ideas that really resonated with her and that she felt, you know, had some value or had some creative you know, value that she really was starting to dig, she would start talking more and she would get more animated. And I would see this in meetings and and it actually informed a lot of how Jeanette and I decided who would be her best department heads, you know, mm-hmm. and I noticed that right away. And then, you know, having spoken to her and understood her a little bit more, that's very much because of just kind of how she walks around in the world. She doesn't do a lot of talking, but she will in circumstance, like she'll talk a lot and joke around and be kind of like an absolutely different person. Like when we were in the sound mix, she loved our sound team. They were amazing. And she was talking all day, <laughs> you know, making <laughs> jokes and, you know, very creative and, you know, very off the cuff and all of these things that you don't get to see of her in the series. And that was very much fueled and fed by she was with a team that she really vibed with, you know, had commonality of the ideas and the creative, and it just transformed to who she was just in the room. So, you know, this was the first time for her that she was ever in a situation where she was needing, needing to deal with any studio or be in these circumstances where particular meetings mean certain things or have a certain purpose and all these. So this was all a learning experience for her. She's done plenty of, you know, film work in the past. She's done several shorts that are really good, but it was her and a small team, not a studio and all of these things. Right. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to kind of switch gears and talk about obviously what's happening now in the industry with these strikes. Both yeah. yeah. Writers Guild and the Actors Guild are on strike, which is literally put Hollywood <laughs> at a stop um, right now. I, I was reading an article today on IndieWire about Charles D. King, who's a notable producer who leads Macro. And um, he was asked about if he was at the negotiating table, what mm-hmm. he would discuss with the AMPTP and the unions. Um, both of you guys are producers. I'd like to know from you, what would you do if you were in the room as a negotiator discussing what you would bring to the table? Wow, that's a big question. I, I love this question. It is a really big question. And reason being for me, I've been in so many different roles in my career. So I've been on the studio side. I've, you know, I'm an independent producer now. 
um, you know, out on my own, producing all my own stuff. Um, I've been in the role of crew member before. Um, my <laughs> my overall background is very much in uh, the working class world of people. My whole family, and, and including my mother, were in uh, the United Steelworkers <laughs> of America. And so I'm super pro-union that way because of my background and because just my own principles about things. And, you know, so I have all of the different perspectives. I understand from a studio's perspective and also my, my educational background and career started out in accounting. So, and I started doing, you know, I was working within the studios in finance and in accounting so I understand that piece of it as well, but, you know, pretty in depth, you know, there's so many multiple aspects of this conversation because the business has changed a lot. Theatrical is still theatrical, but theatrical has been impacted by streaming. Mm -hmm. So there's theatrical, there's television, television has been impacted by streaming. So we have theatrical, we have television, and now we have streaming. The contracts that have been in place for all these many decades does not contemplate well what our business looks like now. The fact that, you know, theatrical has, you know, turned into something where we're basically only doing blockbusters in indies, you know, television, the the way that people watch television, it's not all about network. So all the way that revenues are coming in has changed. And so from a studio standpoint, you know, none of these people are making any money on stream. Like they're losing money in many cases. And part of that is about how they're choosing to, to uh, decide how many projects they're doing and what amount that they're going to spend on those projects compared to what they're making in subscriber revenue. However, in the event where there are successful series or films that are bringing you subscribers, and I happen to know because I spent a little stint at Netflix, so I, I know a little bit about how those algorithms work, how they assess like who's watching what and all these different things. In those instances where you have series and movies that are bringing your subscribers and having those people watch, there necessarily needs to be added to the contracts now a way in which the people involved with those are sharing in the success of those shows. The difference is it's not individual revenue tied to a specific show or film like there is in theatrical theatrical you know oh somebody came and bought their ticket for you know barbie right if it were on netflix they're you're paying whatever you're 15 a month and you're watching barbie and you're watching you know house of cards or i'm dating myself this is all old stuff you know so what amount of that 15 dollars is attributable to that particular show well, the thing is they can't figure that out <laughs> mm -hmm. and they need to, but it's, it's very complex and it's probably different amongst the streamers. And so 
me being very pro-union and believing in equity for everyone, there, sh there shouldn't be a situation in which the monetary uh, uh, success of any of these studios is so highly skewed that it's only going to the seat, you know, the bulk of it is going to a C the CEOs. There shouldn't be a situation in which, in my opinion, as a human being first, <laughs> and then yeah. as an advocate, a producer, but an advocate of the artists who are in WGA, in SAG, in IATSE, there shouldn't be a situation where these CEOs could give up 2% of their salary little tiny percentages and then this money could be you know put into something that compensates you know the the artists who are being able to make this content just because the streaming isn't making money you have other revenue places that are or even if you know if you're a company like Netflix that only has streaming you have to compensate those people who are involved with the shows that are most successful that are bringing in the bulk of your revenue. It just needs to have, it needs to be more equitable and the contracts are outdated now because they didn't really fully bake in the idea of streaming because it was a new technology. But right. now we've had, we've, we've now had, you know, like two to three sets of contracts since streaming came in that haven't adequately addressed it. And I would love to, to see that the, the artists are compensated better for it. I agree completely. I, and I think one of the other issues that, um, what I also read in the article, which I think was also a podcast, but they had brought up data transparency. And th that's something that needs to be brought up in the negotiations because yeah. I still find it odd that Netflix does not reveal their numbers publicly. Right, right. So, you know, TV has Nielsen ratings that we can exactly. measure off of. The yeah. actual has the box office. Correct. Yeah. We don't know what information and analytics is coming from Netflix. So data transparency also needs to be a thing when it comes yeah, to- Yeah, I would advocate for, you know, I haven't seen the streaming contracts in, in many, many years because I haven't worked for a, a streaming company in quite some time. But I would advocate for artists being able to have to negotiate within their contracts that kind of transparency and within their audit rights, if they have a back end participation, to be able to have audit rights that you know gives them some visibility into those numbers, and you know likewise with the guilds and so forth. I know those companies they're very itchy about not wanting to do that because it, I think they feel like it reveals too much about the success or failure <laughs> of their businesses as a whole, especially the ones that that is their only business, i.e. Netflix. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, I think that's, I think that's a humongous issue. And I think it should definitely be something that, you know, comes out of negotiation, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, as a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, you serve on the executive branch committee. What what was your take on the Oscars So White hashtag uh, when yeah. that started? And um, is it still relevant now, given the wins that happened just last year? Like with everything everywhere all at once, Michelle Yeoh. Right, right, right. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And even before that, it was... Um, uh, one of my I'm forgetting the name of the movie from Korea. 
starts. Oh yeah, yeah. Um. Uh. Oh gosh, parasite. Parasite. Thank you. I'm like, what is the word? (laughs) Parasite. I loved. I loved both of those films. I think Oscar So White. You know, it's regrettably. People talk about, oh, why do we need to bring this up? You know, it's it's an ongoing conversation that I'm having in multiple circles that I'm in and organizations, professionally, personally, and so forth. This conversation about inclusion. We haven't cracked it. There are people who are sick of talking about it, sick of hearing it, think we've solved it. We had a Black president. We're done. You know, what? Are, all these things. And like now, you know white males around the country in our business can't get hired anymore because of all this, you know, these inclusion things that are happening. And, you know, that's the conversation. There's always that pushback and the regrettably no thing, no set of progresses that we have made in this country have ever come without a fight, without a struggle without inconvenience to some people, without people feeling uncomfortable, without people feeling like this isn't a necessary conversation. Um, And so did people feel a certain type of way about Oscar So White? Yeah, but it was shining a light on something that was actually existing talking about today and this conversation I hear so frequently the worry and the you know the nail biting of many people about oh my gosh I you know even agents telling their client their white male clients well you're not going to be able to get a job now because there's all these diversity standards this is a false this is a false narrative because number one If we want to look at the data (laughs) and we want to actually talk about the numbers, it is still skewed across the board. Representation is still skewed in writer's rooms, in executive suites, in corporate offices, everywhere. If you walk around and you take the data and you look at the composition and the demographics of any of those settings and you compare it to the particular environment in which it is in, i.e. Los Angeles or the United States or whatever, those numbers still do not match the society that we have. So a conversation to say, we don't want want a system that precludes the same number of white men to get the jobs that they were getting before, we don't want a system that is keeping the quote unquote, keeping them out is basically advocating to keep the same skewed disadvantageous system in place. That's what you're saying. That's what you're communicating by that. As opposed to saying, well, now maybe not the same number of white guys are going to be in the writer's room because now we're actually reflecting the world. And so now you have to compete on that level, on an equal level, on an equal playing field. And why is that a problem? <laughs> so, you know, that's that's what I have to say about it. And I think, unfortunately, we have some retrenchment happening. I see a lot. There's been, there's been in the trades and in the news, many, many um, 
you know, reps who are in these studios and organizations whose entire job it was to promote and and advocate for and put um, initiatives in place to increase inclusion. And a lot of them are now out of their jobs in a lot of these organizations. And there's a lot of, you know, backlash about it. People don't want to talk about it. They don't want to be involved in it. And so we still have a lot of work to do. I, I find that so bizarre. I was I wanted to do an editorial on Black Girl Nerds about that, that there's just this sudden like firing uh, and removal of all of these uh, diversity positions and entertainment. And I'm like, what? I wanted to put my tinfoil hat on. Like, what? what's going on with that? Why is that all of a sudden happening? Uh, it just, and, it, and all at once, because I think it was like within a span of like, two weeks that yes I did a little post and I said you know what I'm a person who does not believe in coincidence Mm. (laughs) you know and that that's not to say I have the answer of what's going on but there's definitely something that underlies this happening all at the same time you know it's not I don't think it's like it's not a conspiracy theory of like all these different studios and organizations got together and said let's get rid of the diversity you know right. but there's something in the water for everybody that is leading the that is leading the atmosphere and the environment and what we care about and where we're prioritizing that is you know coinciding to these things happening at the same time right Right. But do you think also that it's it's systemic as far as like with the Oscars is concerned that there are still members like it's still a mostly white voting body. It's still um, mostly white, even like in my world, I'm, I'm a film critic. There's mostly white critics that are yeah. mm-hmm. promoting these films because, you know, it, these films that are promoted that get the visibility that also plays a part in the campaigning process of these films getting notoriety and all of that so is it a is it a systemic issue is it something where uh there's not enough of us in positions of power where we are able to uh get these films amplified and and to be able to vote on them to where um we can see us represented in in the academy yeah, I mean, you're putting your finger on it. So there there have been studies done, um, and I'm aware of this because of all the inclusion work that I do, but there's been studies done, for instance, in um, on the topic of gender, um, where when you're in an organization that has 30% women, you need to get to 30%. So say it's you know, a set of um, the executives, the C-suite of a corporation or even a board of directors, whatever the case that might be. If you get to the point where 30% of those individuals are women, it has an impact upon the equity of everything. Pay, you know, um, uh, ethnicity, you know, uh all kinds of representation. So when you can get to a place in an organization, and this is why representation is so important, right? because it brings about equitable things. And we talk about equity instead of equality, and I'm not even going to get into that whole thing. But 
Um, I think for the academy, we are still seeing the 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 effects of the composition of the body. Mm-hmm. So, you know, where we don't have the same kind of representation within the academy as exists in the world, we will continue to see some of that unevenness. I think the academy. Um, and I have seen this firsthand, is doing a lot to remedy that. They start, and it started after Oscar So White. I mean, they were doing things before, but the Oscar So White really lit a fire there. Mm. There's been a ton of initiatives. There's a big, big push always in all of the new class of members each year, because they bring in new members each year to make right. sure that there is a better demographic representation of our film community in the world. So the numbers are slowly changing. Um, there is now, there are standards being put into place about making sure that films that are, are um, considered for best picture are meeting a certain standard along those lines as well. Now I will say, there are plenty of academy members and i've heard it in different settings of different organizations who are not happy about it i mean i saw a a clip of i think it was richard dreyfus or something and he was not happy and he was like what does that have to do with you know the the merit of Mm. the movie Mm. wow and there are a lot of people who have that opinion Listen, I am willing to have that conversation with anybody. I think if you have that, if if that's a question that you have in your mind, let's have a conversation about it. And we can, you know, I feel confident that I can demonstrate to you reasons why. And by the way, the standards are going to be such that, you know, other people could argue it's too easy to meet the standard. So Mm -hmm. I think the work needs to continue. Like I've said, I think if we can manage, I I feel like even though I, you know, we've talked about like kind of this retrenchment in having diversity and inclusion reps within certain studios and organizations, I also do believe within the actual prestigious bodies like the Academy, like the directors, well, Directors Guild, Producers Guild, Chat. I don't think there's there's any room for those organizations to go backwards. I think they are only going to be able to go forward, you know, especially as time goes on. We have, you know, younger members, you know, joining the academy, people, you know, with more that that have existed in the world where there's longer in their lifetime been an expectation <laughs> of <laughs> you know, representation, um, you know, and, 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 and including people who are different than you. Absolutely. Now you have a podcast called Dungeons and Durags. Why can't I say that word? Uh, (laughs) And I love that title, by the way, I think it's a really cool name for a podcast. Thank Uh, you. so, So can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So Dungeons and Durag, the podcast is actually born out of its tangential content to a book that a dear friend of mine wrote. His name is Ron Dawson. Mm -hmm. We've known each other many, many years. 
He's self-described as the whitest black man you ever met. At least he was at the time that he started writing this book. So Ron actually grew up, you know, like many of us, you know, have where he was like the only black guy in the room. He was, you know, the only black guy in his school or in his class or when he went to college, he went to, you know, he was in a he was in a co-ed fraternity that was like all whites and Asians. I actually was in that fraternity too, but he's just operating, you know, all of his, you know, work friends, all of his circles. Oh, and he went to like these progressive white churches, <laughs> you know? <sighs> and so his entire life was very quote unquote white. And then Donald Trump was elected mm. and the world turned upside down and what really started happening, and I've had, we've had conversations with other people about like, you know, why did it take that for you to wake up? But because like I said, many of us had that kind of situation as well. But what happened for Ron was he had kind of existed in this world and created these ideals much of it informed by his religious beliefs mm. um it, it, just from a conservative standpoint but what happened was as we all know everybody started pulling their masks off and he was hearing things from you know church friends and other friends and we had all of the you know the racial strife with you know different people with police brutality and he was just gobsmacked and it really sent him into an existential crisis. And he wrote this book about it. it. But the device that he uses in the book is super clever because he's very steeped in television and film. And so he goes through a journey in the book and it's really hilarious, really like so fun and so poignant. Um, and he really reveals himself where he is led by guardian angels, one being Sam Jackson and one <laughs> being Morgan Freeman. And ah. they are teaching him about his blackness and Sam sends him on these adventures and he has to do these confessionals to black luminaries about you know all these different things. And that's the way he tells his story in the book. And because he was, you know, always such a nerd, also another black nerd, you know, he he grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons. So mm -hmm. the title reflects, you know, this duality now, like, you know, now he's, <laughs> he's not, he doesn't really wear a do-rag, but he could, you know, he's a, he's, he's a, he's a transformed individual. And so what the podcast does is we talk about all of these topics, religion, you know, politics, uh, entertainment and all of those intersections of race religion all those things that informs how how his thinking was before how he's thinking now the things that he was ignorant about we have a running through line about in fact our third episode is called squids crabs and barrels because he didn't know he had never heard the term crabs in a barrel so we gave him so much um. shit about it <laughs> so um so he actually did in that episode it's one of my favorites if, if anybody's listening wants to check out and see what the show's about that's the one I would recommend is, is episode three where he did a game it was around the time that squid game was out 
and he created his own game. So we played this competition and it was about like trivia about old, you know, TV shows like Good Times and, you know, the Jefferson and different ones and some more like more current ones. And it was a squid game game. But uh, we also talked about the fact that he was unfamiliar with the term crabs in a barrel previously. So it's a lot of good fun of stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) That is hilarious. He probably had the experience, but didn't realize he had the experience of being in crabs in a barrel. Exactly. (laughs) We've all been there having crabs in a barrel experience. Uh, Well, where can our listeners uh, find out about Dungeons and Do-Rags? So you can actually go to my page, actually. I have YolandaCochran.com. That's the quickest route. And um, I have a menu there of the podcast. So it'll take you, check out, there's a promo video there that will show you, you know, the essence of kind of our banter together. And then it will direct you to the podcast. Fantastic. Yolanda, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Black Girl Nerds. It was a pleasure having this conversation with you. I absolutely loved seeing you in Project Greenlight. And you're welcome to talk to us anytime about any thank other you. Thank you. Thank you. I love it because I've been loving your show. I found it, you know, years back and I was like, oh, my God, I'm so glad this show exists. So it was such a good, wonderful pleasure to have you ask me to be on. So thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Have a great day. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. What's up, Ryan? How you doing? I'm doing good. I love this show. I was about to keep watching it, but I had to be responsible and go to bed because I had all the screeners. (laughs) Did you get all the episodes? I did. I did. I was like, I, I was like, I got to go through these, but I was like, oh, I got to go to bed. But it was so interesting. And I'm not a mom. And I was just picking up stuff that I was like, man, I should do this in my house. For real, Ryan, that makes me so happy that you like it. Yeah, it was cool. I was like, man, if I had any of this kind of organization, I'd be set. <laughs> Look, are you, into, are you into home renovation shows though? No, I haven't. I used to, but I hadn't watched it like watched them in a while until this. And y'all made it like so funny and cool because it's been a while. Like since I check out like the AG TV and everything, and I was like, let me try to yeah. see like what this is about. And it's pretty cool. I was like, it made you kind of relate to it instead of be like, okay, well they're gonna they're gonna post this over here. They're gonna move this over here. You know, you feel like you can kind of relate to it. Yeah, you know, it was really important for us to share story with it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like it was important for it not to be your normal run-of-the-mill what you always see kind of home renovation show we wanted to bring something else to it and so as we started thinking about it and really like brainstorming what we enjoy doing just in our lives we were like all right what really touches us okay families because you know we both are mothers of three okay what else we really want to hit on story. Like we want to make sure as people who really have like issues that we want to solve or we can help solve. And then also just our dynamic is just, I mean, it's just wild. So we just do some crazy, funny stuff together anyway on a regular. So for us, we were like, all right, these things have to be in the show to make it like original and just make it feel like it's authentic to us. And so I'm glad to see that. Yeah, it was cool. To, um, by the way, um, we keep talking we for people that are listening. We're talking about actress Jessica Alba. Um, they have this new beautiful show. You guys wrote the Roku channel. Go check it out. It's called Honest Renovations. And yes. it is about like, you know, just I mean, I don't even know how you put it in like a couple sentences, but 
the families, you know, they need organization and maybe they became like new parents. They have little kids and they started buying a whole bunch of stuff. Things just feel <laughs> like it's not like, you know, organized and where can they find stuff and the kids are running around all over the house. So it's so cool to see Lizzie and Jessica come in and like, look, we got you. We understand we're moms. We're working moms. So we can kind of help you get everything situated and, and you know, where it needs to be. But before I keep fangirling over the show, though, I want to back up a little bit. Lizzie. Take you everywhere, Ryan. I'm about to take you everywhere so you can just, you know what I'm saying? You can do your spiel everywhere you hey, go. Hey, listen, I'll be the hype. I'm ready. I'm ready. But listen. Let me take it back, though, for a little bit, because I was so curious, like, you know, all of us, we follow, of course, Jessica on like her amazing actress career. But uh -huh. for you, I had to go do my digging because I was like, you had this cool vibe where I was like, what did she do before? Like, was she always working on houses? You know, like, did she always have this decorative thing about her, this fashion? So what was like the first dream? Because I always think God leads you to where you need to be. So what was like the first thing you were doing? Oh, I love that you say that God leads you where you need to be. You know, so I started as a, a model, you know, a long time ago. Okay. I, uh, yeah, I started as a model. So I started in the fashion industry when I was like 17. Um, and I modeled my way through school. And then I ended up traveling the world, uh, living in a lot of different countries. And I think that's where I started to first get my taste of like different cultures and different design aesthetics. And, you know, oh, I like a little bit of this and also my passion for food. Um, and then I created the Cool Mom Co., which is after I had children, which is basically the Cool Mom Company. And so it's a website focused on women and motherhood and kind of the intersection of where this cool woman that you always have been and will mm -hmm. be and are meets motherhood and like the intersection of what that is and so that kind of really started my passion on like okay how can I talk from a viewpoint of a mother of color basically because I really didn't feel like there was a whole lot of women of color out there who are also mothers being able to talk to that space and when I became a mom it was the one thing I was looking for so I wanted to create a platform that was really super you know integrated in diversity and culture and just us and you know I really was happy the cool mom co so then after I started doing that you know I met Jessica we started hanging out doing our thing and then COVID hit and oh, we were like yeah. hey, what do we do now so we started creating a lot of content together we started doing a couple projects together and we were like yo this is this is something like I mean our dynamic obviously is very real it's very honest with one another we're very close friends and so for us we were like all right how do we how do we like expand this how do we think of this in in terms of like how we can help other people with this and so we started thinking of this show and so we're both co- executive producing as well as co-creators on this show and we really wanted to touch on families and we were like we're both moms of three we both have experience on what transitions in life look like we both come from this aesthetic of like we love things to look beautiful but storage is huge organization is key and so how do we make that work and these families have some of these pain points that we were able to kind of step in and be like okay how about we think of it this way or have you ever thought about this here and how about we build this out here and it was really cool we got in to get our hands dirty and the show is funny and it's relatable and there's takeaways for design and you fall in love with our families our families are very very critical to us and we really wanted to make sure that their stories shine through so I hope you saw that 
Yeah, we did. And you know what? I like that you pointed out too. This is like women of color doing this whole decor. You don't get to see that a lot because, you know, everybody likes to just tone out for a little bit. You know, you watch a little decorating house show, you know, put up, but they don't exactly look like, you know, black women doing it. Like what are, you know, like us showing our little skill in that, like, oh, you know, we had this layer to us. Yeah, we do. You know, it's cool. Yes, it's cool. And we do. And our voices like need to be heard. And our show are also, our families are also very diverse, which is very important us so mm-hmm. you know uh jessica is you know a woman of color i am obviously a woman of color and so yeah. for us like we wanted to make sure that our families also represented you know represented that like it wasn't right. you yeah. just like, tune in and see what one type of person and one type of family we have diverse families we have also families with different range of kids we mm-hmm. have families live in different styles of ho- homes and houses. It's just like, we wanted to show that. We didn't want this to be your cookie cutter show, your cookie cutter renovation show. And we wanted our voices as women of color to be heard and to be seen. And you're seeing something very different than you see in any other renovation show. Now y'all love to use the, the movie magic, right? Which I appreciate. Cause you know, they just like, let me just get to the point. Let me do it, you know? We don't yes. even know all this, what you stuck it up with and all that kind of stuff. Just tell us how we get to the final result. But though, I'm curious because design meeting now, I like the design meeting. I was interested in it because y'all would break down, like you would lay out and map out the house and kind of break down, you know, like, okay, this kid does this, they like this. And this family does, you know. So where did that come from, from you guys? Like how long did that take as far as like, you know, give us a little BTS on the show. Like, do you guys, how long are you guys in the room mapping out? It's always fun seeing you and Jessica yell at you like, no, why are you sticking it over there? You, you, you ever see like on TV, the war rooms, mm-hmm. you know, like, like one of those shows where they like in the middle of like, yep. in it, yep. come in the war room and they, ah, that's what mm-hmm. it felt like. Every time we went to the <laughs> room, I was like, okay, we're stepping into the war room because, yeah. you know, no, it takes a while. You see a snippet. Yeah, we got a little bit. Yeah. But it takes a minute because, you know, Jess and I are also two different people. And we have, although our design aesthetic is very similar, we do come from different viewpoints. So, you know, while I might have this opinion about this bunk bed, she might have this opinion about this tiling or this opinion. And so it takes a minute to hash everything out and to say, okay, how does this, how can we be cohesive in this process? How can we make everything work together so it feels like, you know, it is one place and one home and one, you know, and intuitively you want to be in this serene space. And so it takes a minute. I ain't gonna lie. We were in there kind of (laughs) jabbing at each other quite a bit. So it takes hours to really come up with the final plan. Um, And it takes days, to be honest with you. I mean, behind Mm -hmm. the scenes, even what you see on camera, we're still tweaking things as we go. And we're still like, things still come up, you know, water mains still break and things happen. And we have this flooring, you know, is popping up in the living room, but we didn't have any plans to do the living room. So now we have to do flooring in the whole house to make it uniform. So we're not just doing it in the living room and not in in the, the bedroom. So it's like, you know, different things are coming up along the way that we're constantly, you know, having to make last minute adjustments for. Mm. So that it's a lot. It's a big process. I mean, I didn't realize doing six homes at one time because we do all the homes at the same time would be this uh, heavy of a load, but it it was, it was, it was quite, it was quite a labor of love. 
Lay I had to paint my sister's room and I about died because she is so like indecisive and and I had to find the right colors because I can't but imagine like you guys did six houses. That's six insane. Houses. Yes, yes, six houses. So it was wild. You know, I mean, if you think about even just painting a room, you're right. Even just like making the decision to paint the room, outlining it with that blue tape, getting your yes. paintbrush getting started oh, what to do yeah. it takes forever so you know doing doing all the homes at once is a lot but i felt like it was cool how we were able to incorporate everybody's like personalities and all yeah. the families what they needed it was dope yeah you guys read people really well because you guys are always like so i love like the i always love the reveal part of it and you guys are like oh my gosh what if they don't like like do we do okay is it great but it's just like their faces like the way you guys are able to read people when they come in and they're like this is exactly what we needed and like the no, even if you're talking about storage like you know you guys make it so covert i love it i was so nervous though each reveal, I was so nervous. I had butterflies on the pit of my stomach each time because, you know, what you also didn't see me saying the whole time to all the families was, why are y'all letting us do this? Why are y'all letting us do this? We, <laughs> why are we here? It's like, I just, uh, the whole time I was so nervous because this is someone's home. Yeah, this is not, yeah. their, not their, you know, oh, they paying a mortgage at this spot. Okay, right. they have invested yeah. in this place. This is where their kids will be raised. This is where they mm -hmm. come home for their sanctuary. This is their spot. And I just like, the whole time I was just like, man, it's so much pressure. You, We have to get this right. Like we don't have any choice. If they come in and hate this house, I will be mortified. Yeah. So it <laughs> was a good pressure, but I was like, come on y'all, we gotta get this right. And timing, you know, timing was everything too because we wanted to make sure we hit deadlines because you mm -hmm. didn't want to keep out of their homes longer than they had to be because these were families and yeah. so we're like okay pressure let's go what that's not done yet what do you mean the bathroom's not done yet no we need to get this done like, so it was like you know it's this yeah. balance it was wild Wow. Yeah, like I think they called you guys in because you guys are the best. Like you guys, it was a lot. It was just so much fun watching it, and it was so realistic. It wasn't like sugar coated on like I, like we see you guys with the nail gun, and I was like, oh my gosh! Like you guys are just did you see it out? Cut things up. It's crazy. Did you see what she was trying to do with me on the nail gun? Yeah, Looking yeah. yeah. It was pretty dangerous. It was pretty dangerous. I was like, look at all this. This is dedication. This is sweat and tears going into this. It was dedication. Thank you. I'm like, girl, you better watch out with that nail gun. Keep on, keep on not looking at that nail gun, see what happens. What, uh, what would you say, like, besides you and Jessica try to, you know, like, listen, I'm trying not to take this girl out before I get this house done. Besides that part of it, what was, uh, what were some of the challenges? Cause like, I know when I was growing up, my mom was like, don't you invite these people to the house if this room is not clean. Like if you haven't straightened up your room, if you haven't cleaned out this living room, don't you invite these people to this house. So what right. is it like when you guys walk in, right? And it's like, the families are like, oh my God, they're going to see this mess like as soon as they walk in the door. I know some of the families would be whispering to me. They'd be like, okay, just don't show that part, okay? Don't show, just don't do that part, okay? I'm like, I got you. <laughs> uh, you know, I think it's very, very uh, vulnerable mm -hmm. to be able to let not only strangers, because yeah. knew none of these families, they didn't know us, um, except for what they see on us or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Right. But we know each other. And to also let camera crews into your home, let America into your home is a very vulnerable thing. 
when you know it's a space that you're not entirely in love with or that entirely represents who you are. And so that was very challenging for our families. And off camera, you know, I think it took a lot of um a lot of courage to do because mm-hmm. I mean, even think about us, right? Think about you and me, Ryan. Yeah. On our on our chillest days at home. Right. <laughs> like you like your mama said, I'm nobody over here like that. Like no. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, people have to give me a heads up. You right. might have days to get this situated. Yeah. You no, know, it's those sort of things. And so these families were very courageous in that sense. And I mm-hmm. loved it. And because of that too, I think it was very important for me to always make sure that they knew they were in safe hands. Like, you know, although I'm so happy y'all trusted us to do this, just know that we are working our tails off to do it the right way. And like, I just want to make sure they always knew that I got them. Like, I got you. I promise I got you. No matter what, I got you. It it may not be perfect, but I got you. And we wanted to make sure we did a good job. It wasn't something that just was going to fall apart at the end. It was something that was quality work that they could really live in and love. And, you know, and speaking of I got you, I, I kind of wanted you to share this in Masters because I thought it was so cool that you guys make sure this is in every episode. But you see these, um, the moms, you know, it's about the parents and the family as well. But you see the moms just like really taking on that burden of, you know, I feel like I'm slacking over here. I feel like I'm not doing enough for my kids. What about yeah. me before I became, you know, a mom and a wife and had this situation? How do you guys help them prioritize? Like, listen, you are still, you know, your fun, sexy, fabulous self. You're just a mom. But, you know, it's just a plus that your mom and your wife now. Yeah. I mean, listen, that's that's what my whole site's about. My whole site, Cool Mom Co, is about that, right? Mm-hmm. So I have nothing but love for when I talk to women, I'm like, uh-uh-uh-uh. You are everything that you need to be. But it takes transitions, especially as a mother. You go through different phases. And I think that's sometimes the hard part is that as your kids are younger, it might be a different phase. As they grow up, it's a different phase. Like the mothers that we talked to who had very small young children were in much different phases than the one who had teenage kids. You know, it it was like their their challenges were slightly different. And so we're where they were were slightly different. But I think one thing that does stay the same for all of us, regardless if you have kids or not, is that you need mental breaks, whether it's from work, whether it's from family, whether it's from, you know, the stresses of just life, you need mental breaks for yourself. And so one thing that was super important for us was to create moments almost in every episode where these parents because I I would love to just single out the mothers I really would um because I was raised by a single mama so I'm like oh mamas yes Mm. mamas mamas (laughs) however you know these families were couples and these families also the fathers were very present and the fathers you know were going through their own stresses and stuff Mm -hmm. with whatever and so each dad also had a moment we we just want really wanted to make sure that the families the parents had their moments to escape their moments for themselves and sometimes that was the bathroom you know sometimes that was the primary suite and giving little moments in the primary suite there's a couple little hidden moments in one episode of the primary suite that I just fell super in love with um, and it was very hotel chic and hotel like, mm-hmm. and every time, you know, they walked, they were like, oh my God, I feel like I'm in a hotel. And that so was that so was so good. That was what I thought it was. I won't, get, I won't spoil it for people. That was so good. I thought that was so good. It was just so sweet. And I love yeah. that so much. And I just was so happy that she got that moment and that he mm-hmm. got that moment. 
that they had that moment together. And so, you know, everyone, it was like a little different for everyone, but we were very cognizant of trying to give these parents just really special, sweet moments for themselves that they could yeah. just have that mental break. Yeah, I love that. Like the mental break is very important, especially with everything we got going on in this world. Like, you know, just having that. Yeah, just having that. Because it's supposed to be your sanctuary, right? Your house is supposed right. to be your sanctuary. You get off of work. You're like, I just want to breathe. I just want to go home. You need somewhere. You need somewhere. If your home ain't your sanctuary, I mean, you know, that's a hard space to be in. Mm -hmm. And and, what I really wanted to take away with the show, too, is that you don't have to be a multimillionaire to do these spaces. You don't have to have amounts of money. Mm -hmm. We really wanted to just say, hey, little tweaks here and there, whether it's like you said, a fresh coat of paint, you know, new curtains, uh, 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 painting on the wall, um, whether it's solutions like hey making sure you have everything in its place and like it's easy to get to and it's put away whatever those little things are you can make these little moments to make your home more exciting to be in more intentional and 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 serene to be in and sometimes it don't take a whole bunch yeah there were like these little um cool wall patterns yeah, just take the tape off, stick it to the wall. I thought that was so inventive. I was like, I probably could have went to the Home Depot. Like, I'm over here struggling and trying to figure out how to add, like, you know, a little pop to the wall. And it's like, you just go and stick it on there. Girl, I, but when we were doing it, I was like, hold up. Um, wait a minute. We don't have to, like, my hot glue gun. I was like, wait a minute. We don't have to, like, hot glue gun. <laughs> right. Or, yeah. Or like, nailing this in. How is this? He, no, we're just going to use the strips. I'm like, so even there were moments where I was like, huh, I don't get it. For real. Yeah. That's yeah. And that was it. And it's like those little moments, those little hacks of how, you know, what we really wanted to do there, we really wanted to extend the wall. Mm. And because it was so tight, we wanted to make sure that behind it, when that door was open, y'all will see. Don't worry. Y'all will see what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, y'all going to see. It's so good. When y'all see this, it's so genius. Like, I'm, I'm so excited for people to see this. Yeah, we wanted to make sure that when that door was open, he also could feel like it was still part of his room. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, that was that was cool. I loved it. I was like, I hope like when y'all get done with like all the families and everything, y'all do it for like the 32 single women. Cause I was sitting there like, okay, so can I put my jewelry like over here? You know, maybe I need some more shelves on my couch, you know, or like some more storage. I was like, let's look it up. Look, look, now you're talking. There you go. Episode two, right? I mean, there you go, right there. The single we got you. Yeah, because listen, I'm like, anybody, I'm telling you guys, it's such a fun, lighthearted series. Anybody can watch it. It's not just about the parents. It's not about the kids. It's about everything. Like, sit the whole family down and watch it because there are so many cool ideas. Like you said, it's affordable. You know, it makes you feel like even though you don't went crazy buying stuff, look, I can tell you where to put it. I can tell you where to put it. That's right. And declutter. Sometimes you don't need all that you got. You'd be surprised what you, you're not a when you really go through it. Yeah, just getting through that clutter is insane. Well, Lizzie, I've had a fabulous time talking to you. I cannot wait. You guys, the Roku channel, go check this out. Honest Renovations. Uh, Lizzie, what else should I plug? What else do I need to plug? Let me know. Uh, Yeah, Honest Renovations on Roku. It airs August 18th. Go check it out. Um, Cool Mom Code. I'm coming out with my own podcast, Cool Mom Code Podcast. <laughs> so that's coming out. So check me out. And uh yeah, just follow along on the journey. I mean, this has been a fun one, but I can't wait for y'all to see the show. Look, you gotta come back and talk to us about the cool mom code when it comes to podcasts. Like you gotta come okay. back. Look, you gonna have me? Hey, listen, of course. 
You can begin my life organized. Of course, I'm gonna have you. What you saying right, right now? Of course, we family now. We family. Listen, nah. listen. We tight. I always like you send the email. I'm ready. Just, just, Look, just let me you. know when. Just give me the I date. Now you a little bit busier than I am, so you know you have to let me know when you're ready. Look, I got you. Anytime. Anytime. I got. You. Thank you, Lizzie. All right, you guys, go check it out. Honest Renovations. Yeah. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Broadnax. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find various episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Audioboom, Google Play Music, and Spotify. 